G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, 
had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Thanks, guys. And uh, great to see you all here this morning. I'm going to pray as we come to Esther chapter 2. Father, as we, we come to your word right in this moment of time, we come before you and we glorify your name. We honor the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we look at this um, scene from a time that is far away in a context which is very different from ours, May the enduring work of your Holy Spirit bring to our heart what we need to hear this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would use my words to do that now. Shine your Son to all of our hearts. We pray this in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Anyone know who said that? Mahatma Gandhi. He did. Mahatma Gandhi uh, was uh, very interested in the person of Jesus, but very off-put by those who called themselves by his name, by Christians. And he found in the behavior of Christians a reason not to follow Jesus. But I think it's true, if we're honest, that it's not just non-Christians who see this. I think that it's actually Christians, and if you're a Christian here this morning, most of us are, I have very little doubt that you have encountered the behavior in other Christians which has left you disappointed, disillusioned, and perhaps, and most seriously, when you see behavior that is, is contradictory, it's different to that of Jesus, especially in Christian leaders, you can feel let down and betrayed. But let's get personal aren't we the problem? It's easy to look at other people, other Christians, and see their faults and weaknesses, but when we look at our own heart, can any of us honestly say that we reflect Jesus perfectly? 
Can any of us honestly say that our motivations and intentions of our hearts are pure as he is pure? I say that I'm a Christian and I've done for decades, but I see the areas in my life that still fall so far short. And I suspect that you do too. I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. What are we to do with that? What do we do to the reality that who Jesus is and who we are, there's a big gulf. What are we to do with that? Well, we're going to come this morning to Esther chapter 2, and I reckon, under God, you're going to be encouraged as we really dig in now to this book. Last week, we set the scene. Now, we really dive in. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she'd done and what had been decreed against her. So after these things, we know that this is about four, maybe five years have passed since last week. If you were here last week, you know, you know the book opened and it opened with this uh, Ahasuerus who's King Xerxes, it's the same person, on the, the most powerful man in the world at that time, leading the most powerful empire in the world. He has this massive 180-day party um, showcasing his riches, getting ready for his big war against Greece. And then there's this ugly moment when he orders his queen Vashti to parade herself uh, before his soldiers and she refuses, he gets angry and he exiles her. He says, you will never again see my face. She's dethroned. Now that was four to five years ago. In that four to five year periods, a lot of significant things have happened. Number one, Xerxes went on his vaunted military campaign into Greece and he came unstuck. Ever heard of Thermopylae or the, the Battle of the, the 300 Spartans? Movie came out not a couple of well, quite a long time ago now, but it came out relatively recently. Xerxes and his army were decimated by the Greeks. And he limped back home to Persia with his tail between his legs. And now it's five years later, it's 478 BC. And the great Xerxes is defeated, lonely, and depressed. And it seems that he wants, not you can have any woman in the empire, but he wants just not another woman. He wants someone like Vashti once was, a queen. So he's open to the suggestions of the young men who attend him. And the young men say in verse 2, and I'll paraphrase this for you, you can follow the real text if you like, basically say, look, king, O oh king, the solution to this depression is simple. You need to order, organize a Miss Persia contest, a beauty contest. Go and get the hottest young babes in the whole empire. Bring them all together. Get them in the gym and the, beauty, the beauticians and have them looking at their absolute best. And then when they're ready, you try them out one by one and the one that you like best, she can be the new queen. Verse 4 tells us that the king thought this was a good idea, and he did so. Now, what do you make of what we just heard read? Uh, the, the narrator doesn't give us comment on it, either positive or negative, but I hope you see how horrific what I just read actually is and was. And perhaps if you're a man this morning, particularly, and you think, well, I know I'm meant to think it's horrific, but it sounded like a pretty good deal. You know, I'm going to get a different, beautiful woman in my bed every night, and um, you know, no obligation sounds like a pretty good thing. Well, think again. 
Uh, history tells us, we know from historians like Herodotus, that Xerxes was a man who was enslaved by his passions. He worshipped the god of power, but he also worshipped the god of sex. And Xerxes throughout his life was addicted to this god. He worshipped it, and the truth is, whatever god you worship enslaves you. And that's exactly what happened. It didn't bring him satisfaction. His unlimited sexual conquests uh, didn't bring him peace. In fact, in the end, he is assassinated in the very bedroom where he worshipped his gods. Xerxes is to be pitied here, not admired. Just ask anyone who has been enslaved to an addiction, addiction to pornography and finds themselves with their real relationships withering while they worship a god on a screen. Xerxes is to be pitied. But what are these young women who have no choice? Uh, if you're a, a father of daughters, particularly, or you're a parent or grandparent of daughters, imagine that your daughter is, is ripped away from your family. She has no choice. She's then taken to spend one night with this king in bed, and then depending on her performance, most likely she will never see his face again. So she'll be uh, she'll given a life sentence to uh, desolate luxury, living in the harem, never to have a family again, probably never to see her parents again, never have children of her own, never even probably to see the king again. And if you're a woman at this point, you think like, sounds like just sexism again. Men dominating women. It's just another example of sexism. And you'd be right, but you'd also be wrong. This is not sexism per se. And how do I say this? Because Herodotus also tells us that every year in the Persian Empire, Xerxes would get 500 young boys by force. He would take them to his palace in Susa. He would have them castrated. And they would serve the rest of their lives as slaves in the Persian court. What we have here is not men exploiting women. We have, at its root, a ruthless, despotic, cruel king who exploits everyone. And at this point in chapter two, we finally get to meet our hero and our heroine. Finally, here we go. Verse five, let's meet the hero. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai is the, the male hero of this story. Let's meet the female, the heroine. Verse 7, it tells us he's looking after a little orphan girl in his family whose name is Hadassah in Hebrew or Esther in Persian. And this little girl grew up to be blessed, I think the word is blessed, with a, a wonderful figure and stunning looks. And verse 8 tells us what happens next. The, the talent scouts are all through the empire looking for the Miss Persia contestants and Esther is targeted and she is taken along with the others. Verses 9 to 11 tell us she's taken. Willingly or unwillingly, we don't know. She's taken uh, to the, the king's palace where she attracts the attention of the eunuch in charge of the harem and she seems to attract the attention of, of a number of different people positively in the harem. She spends a whole year in the beauty spa preparing herself uh, for one night with the king and when she gets her night... She does better than any other of the women in the, the harem that existed, which was, we don't know the numbers, but there were probably many, many, maybe over 100 women already, and all these virgins through the empire, Esther outperforms them all. 
in the king's attentions. Esther becomes, she cho- he chooses her, she becomes the, the new queen, she's won Miss Persia, now she's the queen in place of Vashti. So there are two heroes, Mordecai and Esther, what are we to make of what's just happened? Well, on one level, sometimes people have read this story of Esther and gone like, well, if you've got a heroine and a hero, they need to be a hero and a heroine. They need to be exemplary. They need to be without fault. And there is a lot to like about what we've just read. Um, It's a sweet tale, isn't it, of a father adopting an orphan girl and guiding her through a difficult world. It's sweet. It's also a a sweet tale of of a stunning beauty who comes from nothing and yet by wit and charm grows to become the first lady of the greatest empire on earth. There's a beautiful story in this way, but our heroes, they're just not that simple. There are problems here in the book of Esther in chapter 2. Now, it's possible that you read those, you heard that read and you didn't see them, but if you were in a Jewish context of that time, you would have had some serious questions, and we know from history that they did. Four problems here, at least. Let me, let me run them by you. Problem number one, why are Esther and Mordecai still in Persia in the first place? Why are they still there? Because we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that um, Ahasuerus' grandfather Cyrus had allowed the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to return to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple and the walls and many hundreds, thousands of covenantly faithful Jewish people went. Why are they still here in Persia? That's the first problem. Number two problem. Verse 10 Mordecai tells Esther explicitly to hide her Jewish identity. Keep it undercover. Go, go to ground. And we later learn that Mordecai is doing the same thing, presumably because Mordecai correctly interprets that the position of the Jewish people in Persia who remain is fragile. Anti-Semitism is alive and well, and maybe it's on the rise. So he orders them to blend in with the Gentile crowd because he wants to keep Esther and himself safe. But there's implications for that. If Esther is really blending in with the crowd in in the harem in the Persian court, that means that she's almost certainly been unable to keep dietary laws that were part of being God's old covenant people. She was almost certainly unable to keep Sabbath laws, ceremonial laws, because she's blending in. Those things would have made her stand out. And it's also probable, we're not told, but it's, it's probable, probably highly likely that she would have been involved in pagan worship ceremonies. Everyone was. It's a problem. Third problem. Even if Esther had somehow managed to keep herself ceremonially pure and obey God's commandments in the area we found her, What of the fact that she was willing to have sex with a pagan man that wasn't her husband? And you say, Andrew, give her a break. She did it reluctantly. What choice did she have? It was that or death, probably. That or persecution. I mean, give her a break. And she did it reluctantly anyway. Not so sure. Not so sure it was reluctant. You know why? 
Because if you're going to win the affections of a seasoned sexual predator like Xerxes, I don't think it was that reluctant. That's not how it works, I don't think. It doesn't sound like reluctance to me. But problem number four, and this is the big one, Esther was prepared to marry him afterwards. You say, well, what's the problem with that? Again, she didn't have a choice. And what's the, what's the problem with marrying someone that's not part of God's covenant people? The problem is the Bible. And the contemporary accounts of Nehemiah and Ezra have a lot to say, particularly the book of Nehemiah, about marrying women that are not part of God's covenant. Marry a, a man or a woman who is not part of God's people. For example, Nehemiah chapter 13, 23. This is contemporary accounts, just at almost the same period of time. Nehemiah writes, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Shall we then do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Pretty clear, and yet Mordecai and Esther do exactly what is condemned there in the book of Nehemiah. And you might come back and say, Andrew, look, give her a break. She had no choice. She was in a position, a horrible position to be in where she had to do these things or she had to lose her life. Yep. But there's always a choice. Easy for me to say, but it's true. And, and you know how I know there's a choice? Because of the contemporary or the largely contemporary accounts of what happened to Daniel in the, the time of Ahasuerus' granddad. Do you remember the book of Daniel? Daniel refused to stop praying to the God in heaven and he knows exactly what's going to happen if he continues to pray and it happens. He goes to the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they had a choice. They could have bowed down and gone, oh, well, you know, it's, the risk is too high. If we bow down to this great statue, then we might get killed. But they stand up and go, not bowing. Bring on the fiery furnace. There's always a choice. And I want to be hard on Esther and Mordecai, but, but they didn't make it. They compromised. They're prepared to hide their identity and make compromises to preserve their safety. Now, we don't know all of these things, right? We're reading it, looking at these problems, trying to work out what to make of Esther and Mordecai. Uh, Karen Jobes is, is a fantastic commentator on this text, and, and, and she, she rightly points out we don't know the motivation. So she speculates what might have been going on in Esther's mind. She, she writes, maybe Esther hated where she found herself with all of her heart. Perhaps she felt that her life in the harem violated every conviction that Mordecai had instilled into her. Maybe she wondered how God could have let such a horrible thing happen to her. But on the other hand, maybe Esther loved the life in the harem and its sensuality appealed to part of her nature. Maybe she loved outperforming her rivals in the beauty contest to win the attention of the most powerful man on earth. Maybe she knew that this lifestyle violated God's laws, but she didn't really care. Maybe she thought it was the best thing that ever happened to her. We just don't know. But I notice very clearly that the text itself does not make apologies for their behavior. The text itself doesn't say, and God commanded Esther to disobey the laws of his covenant. 
It could have been the case. No apologies are made. Uh, we, if, you, if you're a first uh, reader, you're reading this, you know, you, you, the kids would be asking like, but dad, could, could she do that? Isn't that breaking? There's a lot of questionable and doubts here. And I think we've got two heroes that are compromised. They're compromised heroes. They're two very imperfect people trying to get along in a world that is complex and dangerous and difficult. Well, that's the story of Esther chapter 2. And now, as I said, I want to share with you why I think this is so encouraging. Two things. Esther chapter 2 tells us, I think, very clearly that God delights in using imperfect people to bring about his perfect will. Imperfect people. Esther is going to become a mighty woman of God. But she's not that woman in chapter 2. So far, we see a flawed woman whose motivations seem to be mixed at the best, and that is so encouraging, don't you think? I mean, God could have used an angel to intervene and protect his covenant people from the slaughter that's going to be coming. Instead, he chooses an imperfect woman who will be the, the channel of his great salvation. And that is not unusual in the Scriptures. If you read the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, you'll see there's a long catalogue of imperfect people who God uses to make his will perfect. Think of Rahab, the prostitute, David, the adulterer and the murderer, Matthew, the tax collector, Paul, the persecutor. God's got a, a habit of using imperfect people in a wonderful, wonderful way. Uh, one of my heroes in the faith is someone I bet you you've never heard of, Brownlow North. Nothing to do with the AFL. Who's heard of Brownlow North? Hey, that's right, Presbyterian minister, you and I, brother, uh, we're, we're there. Uh, Brownlow North is genuinely one of my heroes of the faith. He's got an amazing story. He, he was an English aristocrat growing up in the 1800s, and he, for the first 50 years of his life, was an absolute debauch. Um, he lived a life of, of sexual immorality and womanizing and gambling um, and exploiting the, the people who were under him until in 1854, at the age of 50, he suddenly was confronted with the weight of his own sin. He suddenly, in some way, his eyes were open to his depravity and, and it tormented him. The weight of his sin just was pressing down, crushing him. And, and the hell, he, he, he described the, the gates of hell were opening up, welcoming him and beckoning him in. And he had no way to get out. And, and, and he wrestled with it, trying to work out what he would do. And then finally, finally, with the, with the Bible open before him, he, he placed his hand on the Bible and he cried out, God helping me, I will stand or fall by the Lord Jesus Christ. I will put my trust in his truth and in his teaching as I find it written in the word of God. And doing that, as sure as the Lord Jesus is the truth, I must be forgiven and saved. Branlow North at the age of 50 was radically converted. And I would suggest if you, a Christian here this morning, you know the truth of that. God's forgiven me. All of my blackness and brokenness and sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has removed them and set me free. You know that feeling? I hope you do. 
If you're not yet a Christian, that's something that is available to you. The forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And, and from that moment, Brownlow North was so fired with the good news of the gospel. Gospel means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, that this 50-year-old English aristocrat who lived a life of debauchery embarked on a preaching tour. And people came for the novelty because he was pretty well known before. People came to hear this guy preach. Thousands came, hundreds, probably thousands were converted by this man's testimony, but it came one day to a head in Inverness. He was just about to enter the church to preach and an anonymous letter was handed to him. He opened the letter and in it, it began with these words, Brownlow North, you miserable hypocrite. The letter then catalogued his past, the sins that everybody knew about and some people didn't, and then it concluded with these words, now, you wretched hypocrite, you know that every word of this letter is true. Will you, after reading it, dare to go into that pulpit and rant and rave and preach what you call the gospel? Uh, Brownlow North was visibly moved. He took the letter, placed it into his inner pocket. And when the time came for him to speak, he took it out. And he said, uh, before he began by reading the words, 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. He held up the letter and said, in this letter is a catalogue of sins and every word is true. Every word is true. And then he spoke about how in Jesus he had forgiveness. He changed and transformed and went on to explain and preach so powerfully to all that heard that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And he finished by saying, if Jesus can save Brownlow North, he can save you. An imperfect man, used by a perfect God to bring about his perfect will. And I hope that's encouraging to you. I began at the start by, by saying, like, you know your own heart. You know your mixed motivations. Maybe this morning that you go, like, I'm like Esther, I'm compromised. There's an area of my life in which I'm compromised. There's there's an addiction, perhaps a secret addiction that nobody knows about, but you know God and I know I'm compromised. Maybe you're compromised in other ways. Maybe you go, I once loved the Lord. There was a time when, Andrew, you spoke about Brownlow North and the forgiveness of sins. There was a time when when the reality of Jesus Christ has dominated my world, uh, when his goodness and grace was new to me every morning, but now it just seems kind of dry and dead. It's a desert song. You know, I'm, I'm not who I once was. I'm a half-hearted, I'm an unworthy Christian. I'm compromised. Well, if that's you, take heart. From the book of Esther, take heart. God uses people whose lives are not perfect. And that is such good news for each of us because none of our lives are perfect. God uses imperfect people just like you, just like Brownlow North, just like Esther and Mordecai. God, God's heroes, the heroes in his story of grace, they're not angels, they're redeemed men and women who are not perfect yet. In Esther, we see an ordinary woman living a compromised life, but we're going to see in the weeks ahead that she's going to rise up to a triumphantly victorious mission because of the God who saved her.
and loved her. And it's never too late. The path, if you go uncompromised and distant for God, the path starts right at your feet now. Never too late. God's a God of second chances. Take the first step. You know how the first step begins with repentance. Coming again to God. Acknowledging the reality of where you're at. And saying, God, I want to be used by you. I don't want to waste my life. I'm sick of this stuff. Set me free. That's where it begins. God delights in using imperfect people to bring about his perfect will. That's the first encouragement we see in Esther chapter 2. Here's the second. God delights in using imperfect actions to bring about his perfect results. Slightly different to the first point. He delights in using imperfect actions to bring about his perfect results. Now, Esther lived in a complex, dangerous, and difficult world. I honestly don't know how I would have gone facing her situation. Shouldn't judge her. She lived in a world where things were confused and tangled, and sometimes it just didn't seem a right way forward. And that's the same with us, isn't it? There are a lot of questions in our life we understand, okay, God's got plan A for my life. But there's all these, I mean, who do I marry if you're not yet married? It's a big decision. What work do I do? How do I, how do I spend the energy that God has given me? Um, questions like, how do I speak to other people about Jesus? Do I share with my friends and neighbors, my workplaces, the reality of heaven and hell? The reality of judgment for sin and life in Christ. Do I share those things or, 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 or do I just live faithfully, quietly, asking them to ask me the questions? Or there's someone in our gospel community, the small group we're part of, who, who's drifting into sin. Do, 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 we, do we take a, a direct approach? Stop it. You know, you, you've got to come back. Don't, or, or do we go more gently because we don't want to push them away? You've got a loved one, maybe a child or a grandchild who's drifting away. How do you reach out to them? Do you do it directly or indirectly? Do you intervene or do you not? There are a myriad of decisions which you and I face every day where it's not clear always what we should do. Sometimes we pray, say, God, guide me, and sometimes he does. Sometimes we just don't know. And often I think as Christians, and this is especially seems to be in, in young adult and, and teenage Christians, this plan A is there and we're always worried about missing plan A. And sometimes it can lead us into a paralysis. We don't, want to, we don't know what to do, and we second-guess and doubt, or, or perhaps we do act and then we make mistakes. And perhaps we sin by deliberately not listening to the guidance that God has given us. Or we end up doing the right thing with the wrong motivations. We, we give our finances and our resources to others and, and to the work of God, but then we want to use it to manipulate. We want to keep, keep the strings or we do the wrong thing with the right motivation. We get in a fight with a friend or a neighbor or a work colleague because we want to introduce them to who Jesus is and it gets into an argument. Ever been there? In this chapter, we see that Esther's actions are far from perfect. But we are going to see that God uses her imperfect actions to bring about his perfect will. Uh, Karen Jobes again uh, says this, regardless of their character, their motives, or their fidelity to God's law, the decisions Esther and Mordecai make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises God made to his people. 
long ago. So encouraging. God's using the imperfect actions of his imperfect people to bring about his perfect will. It may be inscrutable, but he's doing it. I've got one recent example. I've got a long-term friend, a very close friend, and and she, um, over the years, over 26 years, I'd, I'd shared with her about Jesus at various times. And, and, and one occasion, um, Dan and I were, were going to dinner with her and her husband. And, um, and it was just a nice dinner. And I got totally blindsided. In the middle of the dinner, she asked a question. And, um, and I just, it, it, was, it, was, it was a question like, so I've got this really good Muslim friend, you know, like, isn't she going to be going to heaven? Because she's really following her God. What do you think is going to happen to her? And in that moment, you know, I mean, I've written essays on this. I've preached sermons on this. And in the moment, I totally fudged it. It was a disaster. You know, I went back um, after dinner and said to Dana, I really screwed that up. And she said, yes, you really screwed it up. <laughs> and, and I went away thinking, God, I am such a failure. Like, I'm a pastor. I know how to do these things. And I, when it came in that moment, it caught me off guard totally screwed it up and and I just feel so you've you've ever been there you feel like oh god how are you going to do your work in your world when you're using people like me like it's just not going to work and then then two years later uh, she emailed me and she said I've come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ she's going on strong now living in the light and full of joy serving now I did fudge it I did screw it up. But speaking to her, God used even that hash I made of that question she asked as a little little contribution to what he was doing in his work. See, God fulfills his covenant promises and it's inscrutable. We can't know. But we do know that he uses imperfect actions to bring about perfect results. And it's true of all of us. Um. This is what Gandhi failed to see. Uh, Gandhi looked at Christians and he he looked at Jesus and he looked at Christians and he went like, well, because there's a gulf between them, I can't follow Jesus. Gandhi was wrong. There's always going to be a gulf between you and I and Jesus Christ. There's always been a gulf. But the truth of the Christian gospel is that when you become a Christian, you don't just become this beautiful, pure, white marble temple overnight. You become a building site. That's what you are. If you've ever been to a building site, you know, big jackhammers breaking up the concrete of sin and hardened resistance. There's, there's wrecking balls swinging, knocking over bastions of pride. See, Gandhi expected to see perfect people, but what he didn't understand is that the gospel of grace transforms perfect people and imperfect actions into his beautiful creation. It's true of each one of us, isn't it? You might tell me that your life is this pristine, beautiful temple, and I'd tell you, I reckon that God's still at work somewhere. I reckon that not every corner of that beautiful temple of yours is as holy as you think it is. And how do I know? Because I'm the same. It's true of pastors, it's true of Christian leaders. If I haven't disappointed you yet, just give me some time. (laughs) I'll get there. Because my life is a building site too. It's God's work of grace. So if you're not a Christian, look at someone who is a Christian, and I hope you see the difference. I hope you see that that you cannot be walking closely with Jesus and live as you were before. But it doesn't happen immediately. And it doesn't happen 
completely this side of eternity. That's encouraging. And if you, you are a Christian, look at the other people around you and recognize that their lives are building sites. They let you down. They weren't there when you needed them. There's some part of life there that disappoints you. Well, they're just like you. The wrecking ball and the jackhammers are hard at work. Does this mean that we can relax about holiness and sin? We can go, oh, God uses imperfect people. I'm imperfect. And God uses imperfect actions, and my actions are imperfect, so I can just sit back and relax. No. Resounding no. If you go to bed with sin, it will conceive and will bear a child that will kill you. You have to fight against sin, because if you don't kill it, it will kill you. There is grace and mercy for the Christian who is fighting the battle to walk closely with the Lord Jesus, responding to the freedom of grace. There's wonderful grace and mercy for that person. I don't think there's any for the Christian that takes and presumes and says, I don't need to fight sin because God will forgive it anyway. Make no mistake, the one who thinks lightly of sin, God thinks lightly of him. It matters how you live. But for the one who wages war and sometimes loses, for the saint who feels that they let the team down and they let the Lord Jesus down, for the one who knows that their actions are imperfect but wants to fight, to grow in holiness in the image of Jesus Christ, there is great encouragement. God's not finished with you. Whatever it is this morning that that you think of that holds your heart, Jesus Christ is a God of grace, mercy, forgiveness, second chances. This is good news. As it was for Esther, so it is for you. God is not done with you. And as a church, and I want to close with this, As a church, we come this morning, and and I believe that we can have what our senior minister, Guy Mason, likes to call gospel confidence. Gospel confidence. As a church, we can step out into thinking about planning a new church. We can step out into big goals. We can step out, and we we look at things are still not perfect, and this is not working, and not working. But we can step out with the gospel confidence that God is not limited by our limitations, that the resurrected Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So go. And that we, as, as, we can have that confidence to step forward in faith, knowing that even if we make mistakes, even if we fail, God will bring about his purposes. But we get to be part of it. So let's not second guess ourselves and wonder about Let's step out in faith, in trust, in confidence. Because you and I have the perfection of Jesus Christ credited to our account. You and I are not perfect. One day we will be. And in the sight of God Almighty right now, if you are in Christ, if you have been saved by his work on the cross, if the Spirit has come to live within you, the perfection of Jesus Christ is yours already. Now, true The way that you manifest that is not yet fully perfect. It will be. On the day that Jesus Christ appears, the Bible tells us, miracle of miracle, you know what? We will be like him. We'll be like him.
So be encouraged. God wants to use you wherever you are at. He wants to use your actions, even if they're sometimes imperfect and flawed. God wants to use you as one of the little stones in his incredibly pure, beautiful temple that he's building. It's good news. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to pray for us that we would grasp that truth. Oh, Father, we thank you for Esther. Thank you for this young woman who lived long ago. Thank you for Uncle Mordecai. Lord, we can't come and judge them and the complexities that they faced, the pressures that they were under. But Lord, we can see in this story that even if their actions were imperfect, even if they were compromised, that you are a God who delights in using people just like that. And so, Lord, this morning, we pray that you'd use us. Lord, if we're compromised, come by the power of your Holy Spirit and set us free. If we're half-hearted, come, Lord, give us whole hearts. If we're cold, come and set us on fire. Lord, use us. We want to be used by you. And Father, we pray that you'd use us as a church. Give us that gospel confidence that you are building your kingdom. You are fulfilling your covenant promises and nothing will stand between that. So Lord, we ask that you would use our church. Lord, we need you. Guide us, direct us. And Lord, help us to rest in the beauty of your son, the Lord Jesus, our saviour. His perfection, ours. Amen. Friends, let us stand.